you're going through what I do with my clients. Now we're going somewhere. Now you're going into soul. Now you're going into like, damn. More Wiser Podcast. Alex Castro-Croy, Trauma and Addiction Specialist. What constitutes an addiction? Because the other day I was listening to a podcast and I heard someone say they were addicted to being a perfectionist. And I rolled my eyes and I don't know if I should have or not because I think of illnesses, right? You, you hear that alcohol, alcoholism, excuse me, is an illness, but can anything be an addiction? Correct. Yes. When we talk about addiction, we start looking at has it caused disruption in your functioning regarding how you think, how you feel, how you behave, how you show up in your relationships. So when you think about addiction, it can be a behavior, it can be a substance, or it can be um, obsessive compulsive um beliefs and values. For example, I'm, I'm addicted to religion. I'm addicted to spirit, you know, a certain belief system. And so it's disrupting my relationship with my children. It's disrupting my relationship with my family because of my uh, addiction to this belief system and the values that come with it. Um, you start realizing that addiction is not necessarily only geared to a substance, but it can be geared through belief and behaviors as well. Okay. So personally then, I think I think there are a lot of people like me who hear someone say I'm addicted to something that's non-traditional. And I think incorrectly, we judge them right away and go, you're not addicted to that. Like you can't be addicted to something, you know, as silly as X, Y, and Z when really it's not silly. And I've heard you say before that, you know, uh, what hurts so much that has to be numbed mm -hmm. is how addictions are formed. Correct. And so really anything on earth that helps you cope with a trauma, and I hope you talk about that a little bit, can become an addiction. Correct. It can be, you know, if I'm my breakup, if I'm codependent, you know, there's individuals who put the drink down and pick up people. And so therefore I'm now addicted to our relationship. I'm addicted to um, this person. And so when we break up or we terminate the relationship, I totally go down a world with, yeah, there's a part of you that's going to go through grief because of the severance of that relationship. But however, when you start losing yourself, when you don't know who you are anymore because of this individual, you start realizing it's an addiction. It's codependency. A lot of times, like you mentioned, you replace one addiction for another. Correct. And so I see a lot of people quit something and pick up maybe fitness or they get really into something else. Is that just as dangerous as the original addiction or is it okay if it's less harmful to that person's life? Well, we always support substituting one behavior for another one, but with an uh, adaptive coping skill versus a maladaptive. Um, for in other words, if I'm going, if I used to go to happy hour every Wednesday through Friday, let's say, and that was that fed my addiction, I'm going to be very careful between the, the hours of five and seven happy hours to make sure that I fill that time with something that's going to be positive. It can be the gym, it can be working out. The issue is moderation that I can go to the gym, work out, substitute that time and be done. But then if I start going to the gym in the morning at lunchtime and during happy hour, you start realizing, okay, now I've picked up another compulsive behavior or impulsive behavior where that's um, substituting one addiction for another. So it all depends on how much is it, you know, is it dysregulating you or you're losing your sense of self? Is it controlling you or dominating you? Or is there a sense of um, uh, moderation where you, you're building self-esteem, you're building self-efficacy rather than it's uh, breaking you down? 
hey, if your career is perfect and everything is going exactly as planned and you've reached the height of where you want to go, skip this ad. But if not, I wrote a book called Leader Relativity, finally a starting point for new leaders. And I think it might just be up your alley. Because honestly, when I first started down my leadership journey eight years ago, it was confusing. There was so much thrown at me. And oh, by the way, what I was reading in the real world was completely different than what I was being taught at work. So if you're in this weird spot where you know you want to take your next step, but you're not quite sure how to do it, please give my book a try. You're exactly who I wrote it for. I can honestly say leadership has never been made this simple. So if that sounds interesting, if you're ready to take that leap with me, hop over to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or wherever you buy books and grab your copy today. Thanks. So then when folks, and I don't mean to just harp on alcoholism, but it's the first addiction that comes to mind. So a lot of folks, the first step is something's wrong. I need to stop drinking and I go to AA immediately. Mm -hmm. And that might be the, the, you know, the duration of their self-treatment is going to AA. Is that enough? Can, can you overcome a trauma by going to AA and just suppressing that desire? No, there's a whole process. Like it, it doesn't take you, um, it didn't take you uh, two days or three days to engage in or to fall into addiction. It took time. And so in order for you to overcome an addiction, it's going to take time. It's a process. It's not an event, meaning it's going to take time. It's going to have to be uh, through coping skills, mechanisms that are going to serve you. Some people turn to cognitive behavioral therapy. Other people turn to dialectic behavioral therapy. There's different modalities that exist in the world that serve as a treatment to, to addiction. And in this case, alcohol. So it's, you know, that when we talk about AA, it's a support system that has been proven to serve individuals, but it's not cookie cutter, meaning it's not enough. Sometimes you need additional skills to deal with cognitive, physical, emotional uh, wounds or emotional uh, coping skills. It's going to help you maintain sobriety. And I've heard you speak a lot on how to cope with this, but I'm constantly brought back to um, prescription drugs, which is a major issue, mm -hmm. at least in the United States, being overprescribed to numb away things. Where do prescription medications fall into the handling of trauma and then subsequent addictions? Well, one of the things we constantly uh, reinforce people who are coming out, coming out into recovery is this is not a replacement of the substance. This is to support you in the recovery. And so when we start looking at individual, let's say we, we go into um, someone who is uh, recovering from alcoholism, when they, when they start uh, coming out, part of the, they, don't, they don't use an abuse as much as Vivitrol. Vivitrol is an injection that now um, you can use to prevent, to deal with the cravings, to deal with, um, if you do relapse, it doesn't have that much impact on you anymore. And so this is just to help you move forward through this stage, the hard stage, which is the physical component, the physical psychological addiction to it. Ultimately, for alcohol specifically, we don't want you on this forever. We want you to eventually wean off. And these are like it's the same thing with people who are on Suboxone or um, Methadone. Eventually, we want you to wean off of it and be able to be self-sustaining. And use cognitive behavioral skills to use um, coping skills that's going to help you support you in the long run. So the ultimate goal is for you to get off of these medications that are helping you recover. Obviously, if there's depression, if there's anxiety, 
those are different because those are going to be help. They're going to help you cope and manage, regulate a lot of the stressors that are coming up for you that used to lead to substance abuse. So it helps you manage it more effectively rather than to give it to the substance use. That's going to be a different conversation than those medications that are being used to help you wean off the substance and go into recovery. And those are really more like a band-aid, right? Because Correct. a lot of people develop an addiction or an addictive behavior because of a past trauma, Correct. which I want to, I want to ask you about. So if you don't, if you don't address what happened, it won't really matter. Your are your chances for relapse significantly higher if you don't ever address it moderately? What, what have you found? It depends on the trauma. For example, if you've normalized trauma and you have not, um, we just don't talk about it, sweep it underneath the rug. That's how we roll. Um, but when it does come up around the holidays, uh, we tend to get wasted and plastered or we smoked. We tend to, you know, the anniversary, we tend to get, you know, high. So we don't have to deal with the memory. That's when you start realizing it's become a problem. It's become a crutch where now you're losing yourself and it's not going to go away. The more we, the more we suppress, the more it will be uh present itself over and over again and it gets stronger the memory the resentment the sadness it gets stronger each time and so you need more substance to deal with the pain and so it depends on the individual it can be for example um just recently i had a client that they disclosed that they haven't dealt with the death of their child and they've never disclosed since they've been in treatment uh uh, speaking about the death of their child until they actually stepped into sobriety. They stopped drinking, they stopped using, and they've been in treatment for about six months. And now that they've been sober, now that they've built rapport and trust, they're saying, you know what the problem is? I have not dealt with the death of my child. And when when he said that, it was, it, there it is. There's the wounding. There's the trauma. So uh, when we talk about what substance did you use, I used cocaine. Why? Because it would make me feel better. So because you were not dealing with the grief and loss of your son, it led to depression. So therefore, the antidote, quote unquote, to the uh, depression was a stimulant, which was cocaine. So then you would drink and so then you would self-medicate with the cocaine to lift yourself up. But then when you stop using cocaine, you would go back to the depression in addition to feeling physically horrible, in addition to feeling shame, guilt and regret because you're now engaged in drinking substance use and still dealing with the death of your son. So it's a slippery slope because I can see how you might spiral quickly. Correct. Say you hit the bottom, right? but you're not ready to see you yet. So I imagine there are folks who go, I'm not in a good place Correct. and I recognize that, but I'm not quite ready for help. Yes. What do you say to those people? So that's, that's the term. There's a term I use, not yet, meaning you're in the not yet phase. So when you talk about, so that, that's pre-contemplative, meaning I know that there's something I need to deal with, but I'm not yet ready. I don't have the ego strength. I don't have the mental capacity to deal with the emotional impact this may or may not have. I'm not willing to reprocess or sit with um, myself as I endure the, uh, the memory of the loss, the pain, the shame, the guilt, the embarrassment. It's too much, too fast, too soon. And so they still need to, number one, build rapport with me, two, build rapport in the process, trust the process. And that's okay. Sometimes it's okay to say I'm not yet ready, but own it. Be mindful of it. Yes. Because one of the things I always tell people is that once you become aware, 
you can't go back to being ignorant. Once you come become aware, you choose to step into denial. Uh, okay. You choose to step into denial. And so um, when we talk about uh, trauma treatment and we have these discussions and someone says, not yet, and I, I can totally respect that. And I can say, but meanwhile, what are you going to do to maintain sobriety, to maintain or to regulate yourself emotionally? Because if you're not yet ready, at least let's talk about grounding. Let's talk about containing the memory or let's talk about regulating where in trauma we have this term called window of tolerance, meaning when I'm outside my window of tolerance, I tend to relapse into old patterns of behavior such as substance use. So when what are the signs mentally, emotionally, physically, when you know that you're at your window of tolerance, you're at a peak? Are you mindful of that? Because if you're not yet ready to deal with the trauma, can you be mindful of the triggers that show up and regulate yourself in those domains? rather than to give in to the substance use. So it's an unsustainable place to live. Correct. You can't stay in not yet forever. Exactly. It's a call. It's an invitation. It, I, I, when we talk about trauma, I use the Greek uh, definition of trauma. Dr. Gabor Matei uses the Greek definition, which is wounding. And so when you think about wounding trauma, um, you've been wounded in one of your five domains, physical, emotional, relational, mental, or spiritual. And so it's your responsibility to tend to that wound. And so a lot of times in the tending, we have to go to the swampland of the soul. We have to go to a very dark, musty, muggy, ugly place. Knowing that I have a therapist, knowing that I have a group, knowing that I have a um, support system, mooring lines where I can hold on to bring myself out. When I go into that depth of the, of the, the swampland of the soul, as I process my trauma, I know I'm not going to be here forever. However, in order for me to heal, I need to go to that place. When you go into the swampland, what are you doing? Like what I, I recognize it's not a fun place or journey to take, but what in this metaphor are you doing in there? In the swamp, pretty much it's encountering the wound. A lot of times we use band-aids. Uh, you know, when we think about um, addiction, it can be uh, porn, it can be shopping, it can be lying, it can be uh, alcohol, it can be cocaine. Those are all ways that we learn to cope with pain. We cope with, uh, you know, we put band-aids over it. And when you tear off the Band-Aid and you start realizing for many years, I've allowed this uh, wound, I have intended to this wound, um, it's gotten infected. So I have to go in there and, you know, when you get, when you get infection, you know, that's where, where I call bitterness, resentment, you know, it, it, it's kind of like the infection because I haven't dealt with it. It's now showing up as bitterness and, 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 and resentment. So I have to tend to that wound. Yes, I can have somebody, a nurse, a doctor come and help me. But at the end of the day, when I leave the emergency room, I have to tend to it. I have to squeeze. I have to put that, and that hurts. So when we talk about in, psych, in psychology, psyche, the swampland of soul is tending to that wound, going to that place, understanding that the medicine that you need is in the wound. 
the medicine that you need to heal is in the wound, just, such a, just the same way as um, you know penicillin came out of bacteria is the same way we heal our wounds is by tending to it, sitting to it. And so, and when we talk about swampland of the soul, as a clinician, I sit with the client as they explore their woundings, as they process it and find their own medicine in the process and come out, use that Mori line, come out and build different uh, coping skills to maintain regulated, to maintain sober. And then next session we go back and we tend to that swampland and then where there's a little bit more you know this let's say for two months we do a lot of uh, mental like a lot of cognitive distortions because of the trauma we deal with those cognitive distortions and we go to the swampland of the soul and deal with the cognitive distortion the next time we come we and sometimes it can be in conjunction with cognitive distortions we have emotional uh regulation we have uh distorted ways of feeling because of these cognitive distortions and so then you start realizing we're dealing with it collectively but the client is tending to their their soul tending. Hey everybody, this week's episode is brought to you by my new book, Leader Relativity. Becoming a leader has literally never been this simple. I spent two and a half years boiling it down, waking up at 4.30 every morning, thinking how much easier can I make this subject for someone who's a little nervous in the beginning and just wants something to get started, to get their foot in the door. So that's what I did. The book's called Leader Relativity, and you can get it anywhere you buy books. Thanks. If you're in the not yet stage, can you can you nibble off pieces of the swamp? Oh, yeah. Can you can you dive in just a little bit? Because yeah. I think of I don't want to say treat yourself, but can you get to a place of sustainment that way? Or even then is not yet unsustainable? Well, it all depends on uh I I, I always I call it the triple A threat. Is it accessible? Is it available? And are they amenable? So is the, is it's, for example, are they, uh, do they have, let's say we start off with individual sessions and in the individual sessions, I find out they're not yet ready. They're not yet. So then what I'm going to do is put them in a group, if they're amenable to group, where they hear other people who've gone through the process and that are in different stages of the process. Other people who are starting off, some that are midway through their work, and some that are terminating their work. And I put them in that process. And as they hear their stories and start resonating with them and start realizing, you know what? They've been through it and they've come on the other side and they've trusted the process and they had clinicians here so if they did it and they were worse, mine's not that bad. I need to start trusting the process. So you create a space where you build rapport and they get to learn, have availability to hear other people's story and use it as a support and build self-efficacy and self-esteem. See, here's the thing. When we think about um, our trauma and our wounding, we fear what we don't know. So therefore, my self-awareness is very low. And because my self-awareness is very low, I, mean, I don't believe that uh, this intervention might work because fear is paralyzing me. So I'm low on self-efficacy. And so therefore, it's I'm afraid of looking like a fool and looking like, um, like uh, weak or vulnerable. So therefore, it's going to affect my self-esteem. So when you you provide and promote a space of safety with other colleagues that have gone through the same thing, it builds up self-esteem. It builds up self-efficacy. It builds up self-awareness. 
So then they start realizing if they can do it, I can do it too. And then they go into the individual session like, okay, I'm ready to do it. And then eventually you see them moving through the stages of change. They go from pre-contemplation to contemplation to determination. Like, you know what? No, let's do this. And then they go into action. And you said the word intervention, which made me think, do you have to want to be there? Because so often you see on TV or shows or whatever, someone gets shipped off to rehab only to relapse in the future. I imagine you have to actually want to go through the process. How often do you see people that are not ready, who they're there because to appease someone else? Yeah, there, there's individuals who, some, those individuals that are court mandated, that, have, that they have to come in order for them to have, you know, their freedom or in order for them to stay with their family. Um, those court mandated people struggle a lot, not all, um, struggle a lot with uh, wanting to do it. Um, eventually when they leave, if they're actually serious, they apply a lot of the skills and they don't come back. Some of them recidivate. Um, they pick up another charge and then they come back and they say, now I'm ready. I've had many clients that I've told them, we're here for you. Do you want to continue? And I know they haven't fully completed, uh, their treatment. They haven't fully, uh, gotten to that space where they feel self-actualized or they feel like they've overcome the biggest challenges and triggers of their trauma, um, those individuals eventually leave and I let them know, hey, whenever you're ready, we're here for you. You don't have to be on paper or you don't have to be on probation to, to take advantage of the services. But if they're ready, they will continue. They will engage. Either It doesn't have to be with me. They will continue do their journey somewhere else working on themselves. But you see a willingness a desire to continue doing the work. For those individuals who don't want to be here, they tend to terminate when their classes are done and then you see them recidivate or you see them come back, whether it's with our agency or somewhere else, uh, with a new charge, they come back with another, uh, you know, disrupting the peace or they just get stuck again. They're, you know, they're dysregulated. They're um, in a very dark place and they, they call out and reach out for help as well. Do you have to evaluate those people who see you from a court mandate? Yeah, everybody who comes in, it's it's part of our, our agency here in Colorado. When you're a behavioral health part under the umbrella of Behavioral Health Administration, everybody that comes to an agency that's part of their intake is to do an assessment to see. Uh, it's a needs assessment to see mentally, emotionally, um, and psychologically, and in substance use and addiction, where are they? And so you get to see what's in the best interest of the client, whether um, it's group and a group uh, treatment, individual outpatient, or sometimes they need a higher level of care, and we're not an appropriate placement. And so we assess them for that. And how can you tell if someone needs to be in a group or does better alone? Can you read someone right away and determine that? Normally, when you start seeing that they're they don't have that much support in the community, they're completely dysregulated. Um, they don't have um, a sense of stability. They don't have a great support system, and they're constantly um, relapsing over and over again. And there, there's and then there's no willingness to change. You start realizing they need a higher level of care. We're not appropriate. Is part of the problem also with people taking that first step? the stigma around trauma and addiction, because a word that's thrown around a lot is baggage. And I, f I don't think it's right because usually people are talking about circumstances or events that have happened, which have left a scar on them. And it's almost, they're ashamed to bring that around with them. And well, they, they call it baggage. Is that 
making it difficult for people to actually reach out and, and get help? Yeah, especially when it comes with a label. When you think about diagnosis, for example, I work with individuals who uh, want to use their insurance. And so I let them know if you want the insurance to cover, there has to, has to come with a diagnosis. And think about, so what's the diagnosis you're giving me? And so that becomes a huge stigma. Like, I don't want to be diagnosed. And so uh, a lot of times if you go through insurance, the diagnosis piece has to be part of it. However, the diagnosis doesn't necessarily mean something bad. It serves as a compass. Like, hey, this is an issue that we need to deal with and uh, manage and regulate and, and give you the coping skills that you need to be able to um, not live oppressed by it, but to feel empowered and be able to manage it to move forward. So it's a matter of reframing. Um, but yes, there is that stigma of uh, something's wrong with me. I'm broken. I'm not whole. And so when we think about um, when we think about uh, woundings or trauma, we've all got, gone through trauma. There's a term we use, big T's, uh, big traumas, and small T's, small traumas. Uh, and so we have all had big T's and small T's. COVID was a big T for all of us, especially if we had someone who died directly or indirectly. Um, the constant scene on TV, how many people died today, that's traumatic. That's a big T. And so seeing um, hospitals having to change uh, our lifestyle consistently for like three months or, or even more was a big T for a lot of people. And so you started seeing that mental health increased significantly during COVID because that was a big T that uh, served as a catalyst for other mental health to come up. You started seeing an increase of addiction, an increase of anxiety, an increase of depression, an increase of, uh, you know, you start seeing a lot of people actually having to sit with themselves in silence in their home. And that became very uncomfortable. But to go out and ask for help means there's something wrong with me. And I don't want to do that. So I will suck it up. I will deal with it. I will cope with it as as as, as needed, and um, I don't want to be part of those quote unquote people who uh, have severe mental health. I'd rather just deal with it, suck it up, and move forward with it. And so, yeah, there is that huge stigma that something's wrong with me and I'm broken, and people don't want to deal with it. We're seeing more acceptance in our culture on mental health, as you can see. Um, there's been a huge wave of um, advocacy um, to speak up, um, to talk about your mental health and engage in services by offering resources out in the community. You mentioned COVID as a big T, and I have to assume the large amount of mass shootings is a big T as well. In the few, 20 years from now, what's an indicator to you that a lot of our population has undergone a major trauma because of all of these? You know, we have uh, an assessment tool that's called the ACE study, which is Kaiser Permanente and the uh, Child uh, Center for Disease Control. Um, the ACE study uh, did uh, pretty much followed people from um, their childhood to adulthood. And it's the ACE is an acronym called uh, Adverse Childhood Experiences. Um, the second component of Adverse Childhood Experiences is Adverse Community Events. So if we look at the tree, a tree, the what we see outside the top part of the tree is the adverse childhood experiences. 
poverty, domestic violence, dependency and neglect, um, uh, unresolved or unattended mental health in the family. You talk a lot about the nuclear stuff that impacts the individual. And then when you look at the roots of the tree, that's the adverse community events. So COVID, the shootings, inflation, the housing market, homelessness, that's all part of adverse community events that are having direct impact on the adverse childhood experiences. And so when when we think about, um, I'll I'll give you an example. My brother had a conversation with me. He's like, I can't believe um, my six, my nine-year-old son is having uh, shut down drills at their elementary school. We only, and, and, and as he's talking to me, I was like, oh my gosh, we never grew up with that in Southern California. What do you mean? Yeah. So they're having, they're practicing, sh- you know, shutting down the school, you know, getting underneath your tables because of shootings. He goes, it, it makes me so livid to know that my nine-year-old has to do these, these types of, of uh, drills now. And I was like, when we were growing up, all we had was earthquake drills. That's all we had, you know, going underneath the table and, and hiding because that was a natural disaster. So we start noticing that there's a change in the paradigm based on the adverse community events. What we, if we think about, um, I had a conversation with my dad and he said they had the, uh, uh, my grandparents and him went through the atomic bombs in, in Mexico of where we had, we had to be careful and we had to drill. So it depends on what is the threat that we're living that we adjust. And so when we think of what were the drills that we went through as kids and how they impacted us as adults, well, it depends on what was going on. What were the adverse community events and what were the adverse childhood uh, experiences that we were going through? So when we talk about the future, um, we're probably going to see a normalized, uh, unfortunately, not that I'm, I'm happy about it. It's like I told my brother, this has become our new norm where we're going to have drills to deal with shootings unless there's this huge reform. You know, regardless of where you stand, this is going to be something that is going to be normalized because of adverse community events that are impacting children. Is that going to form a callus over that part of the brain then? you're going to start realizing there's going to be much more uh, fear, much more anxiety, much more uh, stress around, uh, you know, shootings around guns. You're going to start realizing a lot of people are going to feel a lot of uneasiness when it comes to uh, someone uh, just carrying concealed carrying, because it's going to be seen as a threat, especially if they do not look their age, if they're minors. And then that makes me think it could almost turn into an evolutionary response if that happens for so many generations, where then that now impacts future behaviors and Correct. so many other things down the line. And I wanted to ask you about, and I don't know if this is even a term, I just wrote it down and made it up, Alex. I wrote down yeah. cultural traumas or generational trauma. And you think back to two in particular, there was the, the treatment of Native Americans by white settlers and then the enslavement of black people in the United States for hundreds of years. How have those traumas still perpetuated today and impacting people of those cultures? So one of the terms I always use uh, uh, with trauma is trauma not transformed is trauma transferred. Trauma not transformed within you is trauma you transfer on. Let me give you an example. Back in the day, the Tuskegee Project, 
where the CDC used the community of African-Americans in the South and consciously infected them, aware they were aware they infected them with uh, syphilis, and they called it bad blood. They did that because they wanted to see the different stages of syphilis and how it led to death. That is a cultural uh, trauma. That is, they use, they abuse, they suppress this, these individuals. You would be arrested. This, this is part of our history. And so when we start thinking about um, COVID, right? Well, this came from the CDC. This came from the government, this research. And so when you start looking at why are the numbers so low for the vaccination in the South, it's because it's been traumatized. This population has been traumatized with the government because they were, they're guinea pigs. And so when you talk about it was never transformed, so therefore they hear stories of how the government consciously infected them with syphilis and how it impacted and killed communities and families because that trauma was never dealt with it's now passed on and so they do not trust the government issuing vaccinations because look what happened to us before so trauma not transform is trauma transferred and so therefore there is a mistrust and we can't sit here and say oh that's ridiculous because it's not it's not subjective to our reality it's not subjective to our experience. To you know, it, it was subjective to their experience as well, their their experience. And because it's their experience, does it mean it's not valid just because you don't understand it? You know, we talk about um, three types of empathy: cognitive, emotional, and compassionate empathy. And so, when we look at a trauma through the trauma lens of tending to these individuals, we need to have cognitive uh, empathy where I want a desire to understand, not judge you, understand why you feel this way. And I want to have an emotional empathy, understand why you feel this way, not just think, but feel. And then the compassionate empathy is be able to not only understand and feel, but support you and, and uh, desire to help you as you walk and navigate through your trauma as a, sec- as, as a clinician or as a trauma-informed therapist. And so when you think these populations that they've gone through culturally uh, oppressed or culturally have suffered trauma, we need to have those three types of empathy with, with working with them and not understand that they're not coming from an ill-intended place. They come from an intergenerational trauma wounding that has played a huge impact on their ability to trust. How do we go into the swamp as a, as a country or as a culture for those types of traumas? Because the rhetoric right now is certainly not doing it. So how, how do we start that conversation? Or I mean, are we in the not yet stage? You know, I think we're in the, oops, we're doing it again. Uh Oops, we're doing it again. Here we go. Um, Because when we look at, so so I want to, I want to first clarify, I come from a depth psychological union perspective. So when it comes to working with trauma, so I want to first and foremost, full, full disclaimer. So when we talk about psyche, the collective consciousness, we are all collectively conscious that there is a problem right now in the U.S. We are split. We are divided. 
there uh, is a conscious, there's a collective consciousness that there's a war going on in Ukraine. It's impacting us. We're collectively conscious that there's inflation. We're collectively conscious that there's a problem with um, uh, homelessness. There's a collective consciousness that there is suffering, physical with sickness, mental, emotional, and the big piece is spiritual. We're suffering. What's our what is our purpose and meaning right now? And so when we think about how have we been wounded, how have we been wounded in our five domains, mentally, as collectively, um, what we used to think was safe is no longer safe. What we used to when we used to feel safe is no longer safe. School was the safest place you can be. We used to feel safe, look forward to it. Now kids don't want to go to school. Why? Because they've been wounded because of the, of the collective shadow, the collective wounding that has not been dealt with. And so when we think about the wounding that has not been dealt with, it's like mold. When you do not deal with the problem, it expands and it grows. The sh- you know, the, the more we ignore the, the shootings amongst kids, amongst teenagers, it's not going to disappear. What's happened? It's increased significantly. You know, the wounding, when we talk about uh, woundings of uh, the tra- traumatic, uh, the everything from uh, cultural, um, the fires here in Colorado, water in uh, Michigan, Flint, Michigan, you start thinking the different types of we can't even our survival, our ability to feel uh, taken care of in, in our basic needs is being challenged with our food, with our water. So how are we going to deal with this reality? We can't sweep it underneath the, the rug. There is a collective unspoken fear, anxiety that we're starting to feel. How do you have that conversation with your children then who are going to school, who are afraid? Yeah. So then we start talking about there's the collective and then there's the personal. We can't control a lot of times the collective, but we can't control. We have dominance over personal. So what are you aware of? So here is what we're going to start talking to say your children. What can you do? We have these devices called cell phones. So if something does happen, you talk, you text me. We so and once you hear, you know, you 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 don't call me, you text me. If there's something goes down, text me, let me know. If something does go down, meet me. For example, um, one of my my clients decided to make a safety plan to ease their anxiety as a parent. If something happens and they uh, our meeting space is always going to be the parking lot across the street from the library. Meet me there. I will always meet you there. Does that make sense? You'll always text me. Um, if you can't talk, give me an emoji to let me know you can't talk. There's different ways that we can communicate to affirm safety for these kids and also provide them a space so that they can be vulnerable and not diminish it or belittle it. Give them the time to be able to talk about it. A lot of times we overwhelm the kids with our information, with our fears, and we do not let them express theirs. 